Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, Elixir is back in the Tyobi Index. It comes in at number 48, which is in the top 50. So that's really cool, right? Well, I don't know, because like the Tyobi Index is really kind of meaningless. What do you guys think? I... I don't know. I take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> I mean, for example, Visual Basic Classic, you know, like the one that you probably used on Windows 3.1, like on your 386 computer, it, it shot way up into the list. So like, am I going to go learn that? No, not, of course not. I'm not going to, I'm not going to learn it. There's other languages that are far more valuable. If that's how they sort their list, I, you know, I, it's fine. I, I'm happy that it's in the list though. Yeah, I know. It's it's kind of relevant just because some people think it's important and they give it a measure of credibility. I personally don't because if you look at some of those other things like we're talking about, like it doesn't really seem to make sense like for making decisions about technology that you're going to use in your company or your team. It's just something to be aware of. But uh, yeah, so yay, it's up there, number 48. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also in the news, uh, Surface Catalog might be coming out. If you haven't heard of Surface, Surface is a component-focused library uh, that's being built on top of LiveView. It gives you the experience like React, but uh, with Phoenix and an Elixir. And it brings with it a lot of uh, compile time checks on your HTML and your LiveView components. So it's really, really nice. That's Surface. Uh, so think think Surface Catalog. Um, think React Storybook, if you know what that is. Um, and, and Storybook is just a way to view your rendered outputs, uh, customize it, read the documentation on those components out there. So things like a button component. And and, and this catalog will tell you what's, uh, what props are on there, what customizations you can make on it, and it'll render it there on the page for you. Uh, so it's, it's a very nice uh, experience for determining how you want your components to look. That's by uh, Marla Sariva. Uh, it's not out yet, but the tweet has a video that demonstrates it. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah, what I think is interesting about that is just, like you said, the React Storybook, it, it's, it can be a good resource for within a company, within a team, you say, here's a list of a catalog or library of all the different components we're using. So you, as a new developer who come in, you can just kind of see it and play with it and say, oh yeah, that's the one I want. Oh, and here are the options I can play with. So yeah, yeah it's a good, a great resource to have. Next up, Bruce Williams, the co-founder of the Absinthe Library, announced that he's stepping away from being an active core contributor. So he has a really good long Twitter thread where he kind of explains a lot of his motivations and it looks like it's going to be a very smooth transition. So it's really nothing to be concerned about. Ben Wilson is totally staying on being involved, and Bruce says he's still going to have some level of involvement, but uh, just something to be aware of. I just wanted to mention that there's a new Dashbit blog article out called Building a Custom Broadway Producer for the Twitter Stream API. What's interesting about this one is, is it has an example of parsing an API as a data stream. A particular example is using the Twitter API, so it's fun, and check it out. Yeah, I thought I thought that was interesting. Like every time I hear about Broadway, I think of it, you know, in association with some like advanced message queue system, you know, like uh, RabbitMQ or uh, you know, Amazon SQS or something. But you don't have to have that kind of infrastructure in place to use Broadway. Um, and so in this example, I thought it was amazing, just bringing it back down to what a lot of folks would be probably interacting with are just simple APIs, pagination, for example. Um, so I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Like you say, like there's a lot of situations where I don't have something that generates a lot of source data to play with, you know, 
Mm-hmm. And so when I can use Twitter, which is like, you know, depending on what sets or lists I want to follow, I can have like an infinite stream. So it's just something gives you something fun to play with. And hey, you can start doing your own little analysis on Twitter streams. Another little item is that Erlang OTP has moved to GitHub for their issue management. And previously it was managed somewhere else. I didn't actually know that it wasn't already on GitHub because I haven't been actively submitting reports there. But I think that's a great move that just makes it easier for other people to get involved. There's a new static site generator on the block. This one is called Still. And the static site generator, right, this is going to use Elixir to generate that static HTML. You upload just that HTML. It's not a running application. There's no Phoenix involved here uh, that's in the running application, right? It's just static stuff. And this new static site generator is called Still. There is another one that exists. It's called Serum. So we got Still and Serum. Miguel uh, Palias uh, helped create this, and we interviewed him uh, back on episode 7. So it's pretty cool to see, you know, him uh, continuing to to contribute to the uh, to the Elixir community. Uh, we had talked about uh, background jobs with him um, before, so pretty cool to see him uh, with other 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 arenas like static site generators. Uh, and it, the site looks pretty cool. So even if you're not going to use static site generators, like at least check out the site. They did a pretty good job with that. <laughs> a new release for Nerves 1.4 came out. Of note. They support natively the M1, amongst other improvements that they made, like GCC 10 and others. Check out the change log if you're interested in nerves. And that's it for the news. Today we have our special guest, Alex Minette. Alex, I'm really glad to have you here. We have some fun stuff to talk about. Uh, particularly, you, you wrote some blog posts about some of your adventures in Live View and doing some things with hooks. And I just want to make sure that people who are coming to the live view and Phoenix space are aware that you can do these things and that we do play well with JavaScript. And I thought some of the approaches you took were creative and fun. So I'm looking forward to talking about this. So, but first, Alex, welcome to the show. Hi, Mark. Uh, thanks for um, welcoming me to the show. Um, I'm very happy. Uh, I've also listened to a podcast a few times. And also, I'm, I'm very happy to, to be here and, and discuss our what I'm building and how, how I'm doing things uh, with Elixir and LiveView. Well, before we jump into this topic, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about yourself, like where you live and what kind of work you do. I'm a French guy living in the mountain area in the east of France uh, right now, but uh, I've also been living in the UK for a while and also worked remotely um, in Asia so for a long time, before before everything happened, before the pandemic, yeah. So right now, I'm working at a company called uh, Penny Lane, which are building some um, accounting software built in Ruby. And I'm building some personal uh, side project called Magio, which is a black like, kind of a personal accounting kind of things where you can uh, put your expenses and income. And that's um, where I'm using LiveView and using Elixir. I always encourage people when they're exploring and playing with Elixir to build something personal for you that you care about, you know, be it a Pokemon card tracker or like a personal accounting checkbook kind of uh, expenses. I think that's great. That's where you get into having the interest to push through and actually solve some of these problems that you encounter and, you know, come up with a good solution. That's another thing I think is great about um, just doing these personal projects it gives you the space to dig a little deeper into how can I solve this the right way because I want to spend the extra time to solve it and really kind of learn as opposed to like a work environment where it's like, crap, I got to get this out the door. 
Yeah, exactly. That's exactly the, um, the approach I've taken. Because in the past, I was using some uh, personal budgeting tool uh, I had on my smartphone. And then I found like some, like, some of the things were not so great with it. And uh, like some of the things were missing. I've searched for a lot of different apps, but I could, I could never find exactly what I wanted. So I start, I started to build it. I spent about two years building it. Um, so first the mobile part and now the desktop part with the uh, live view. But um, that started just as a scratching my own itch here, basically. So yeah, you, you've written a couple of posts here uh, where you've learned things from your side project. And yeah, I've got a lot of experience with that too. I've got a bunch of side projects out there. And I, and I love them because there's no pressure to do it right. You're just, I'm just learning and I'm just throwing code out there. And when you play with code like that and play with ideas like that, it sometimes gives you a good place to make a lot of mistakes, <laughs> uh, safe mistakes, and then also ways that you, know, you can gold plate your code, make it as so right that like it's impossible for this thing to, to crash, right? What are some of the things that you think that, uh, that you learned in some of your, your side projects? I learned quite a lot in my side projects. Because it's in a, in an accounting uh, kind of um, environment, you need to be very precise and and have very robust code first in, in the first place. Because any mistake you, you you're doing, any kind of like changes you're making to the app there, it can affect the behavior in the future and can affect the past transactions and can then render the whole data useless here. So um, I've learned quite a lot of uh, like bulletproofing, uh, uh, like the way I'm, I'm I'm building things, both on the on the live view side and on the mobile apps uh, on the Flutter side. There's like a tremendous amount of uh, uh, testing and code quality uh, checks here uh, to make sure the the uh, accounting part is just just working right here. And I've also learned a lot on user experience because. One of the main reasons I was, I was also building this uh, personal budgeting app was like the, the available options uh, for what I wanted were not as good or as polished as I, I wanted to. It's not like something like the like social networks where everything is uh, pre-built and um, like already made, made your market. Yeah? Um, this is not the case in, in the personal budgeting world. Yeah. yeah, I can see that. The user interfaces for like bank websites are very utilitarian. And very old. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's fun. You can make it more mobile friendly and, and play with it. So maybe we could jump in and talk about like this first blog post you had where you were solving this problem of dealing with large lists. And it's like, this is, you know, live view. You're talking about, I've got, you know, I've got transaction history. And if you're pulling in data from your bank, you know, you've got, you know, months or years worth of transaction history. So you could have a, an incredibly long list depending on how you want to handle that. So maybe you can kind of give us a little bit of background as to kind of what this problem was that you were trying to solve and how you went about it. For personal uh, budgeting tools, you have you can have thousands and thousands of transactions in just one view, one app. And so I was very worried at the beginning that uh, with LiveView and the way uh, the data is loaded, it would just slow down the page. Browsers are also not very good at rendering lists of uh, ten thousand elements. It's not. It's just not working very well. So I've made a few a few tests at the beginning, just just trying like uh, putting everything into the database, like just dummy data, and, and trying if it if it changes the around around the time. I instantly saw that the app was just struggling. 
Then I remembered that uh, I was using, um, I'm using Fastmail as my personal uh, email tool, and they have this very cool feature uh, that uh, you can just go into any part of your webmail and it just streams the data. It just streams any part of the of um, the email you're you're, you're watching, and only that. Uh, and it just looks like like everything's there when you just first look at it. You can just cross at any point, and everything's there. But in reality, it just streams into chunks uh, everything you see to not uh, overload the browser. So I thought I could do just the same with uh, Live View. So just to to visualize this a little bit, so. You have a long list of, of transactions. Your scroll bar is the full length of, of the list. And so you can scroll down to where you think you might be interested in, in the list. But as you're scrolling, you'll see that your items are actually just blocks, right? There's no actual text in there. They're just blocks. They're, they're placeholders. And then once you let go of the browser uh, scroll scroll bar, or or maybe when when the view is is sitting there for more than a, a couple of milliseconds, that's the part where you hook in, grab the the data, and then replace the placeholders with the real data. Is that capturing it pretty well? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, um, there's basically two ways to do some infinite scrolling. You have the Facebook way, uh, where you just scroll down and things appear as you're scrolling. And you have the Gmail way or like uh, Fastmail on my case because I'm using this uh, where you just scroll in, you can scroll into the middle and the things appear also uh, where you just yeah. clicked it. So this is the right approach if you have a list where you, the user knows already the elements uh, which are there. And so you are using a JavaScript library to help you do some of that front end client side stuff. And can you tell us about that JavaScript library? It's not one that I'd used before. I've used this uh, library called uh, fattable.js, which um, I've searched for, I've searched for quite a, a lot of libraries, to be honest, before picking this one. I've uh, tried a lot of demo, and I've tried a lot of libraries out there on GitHub before finding the right one. What I wanted uh, in the first place was something very lightweight, because Lifey is very good for uh, stripping out everything from the uh, browser payloads of what you're actually loading into the browser. So I wanted something which doesn't depend on jQuery, doesn't depend on React, doesn't depend on any other large library that I could just plug in, like stitching into my code, and it just just would do uh, just what I wanted. Um, the good thing with this library is just waiting uh, under 10k with before JZip. So it's doing the bare minimum, like just to display the, the live view. Uh, the only way to, to make it uh, smaller than that would be to do everything by myself. <laughs> so the idea of this, uh, of this library is to provide that, those placeholder blocks for you and to give you an approximation of what page to go fetch from the live view itself. Does that sound right? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. It's, uh, the way it's doing it is it's creating a very large div. Uh, of the, the height of the, basically the number of items multiplied by the height. So mm -hmm. to have the exact uh, uh, scroll bar you need, yeah, like if uh, all the items would be there. And then what it does is every time it just listens to scrolling events. So when you're going into the middle of a, of a list, it just puts like the elements there and then change their positioning with uh, CSS transforms. Uh, so this way, you don't have like hundreds of thousands of elements. You have maybe 20 or 40, just enough to display two screens, like one screen and a half worth of items. And it's always the same items, like cycling through. Uh, that makes more sense, because when David was explaining that 
there would be like a million placeholder blocks. I'm like, well, that's still going to make your page <laughs> laggy, right? Like just because they don't have text in them doesn't mean that there's not still a million elements that the the browser is struggling to render. So there's actually just one huge div and then you just have like the same elements like moving when you're scrolling and you're not you're not creating a million, you're just creating like enough to fill up your page. That's interesting. That's cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's basically an illusion. Yeah, it's like a like a magician. Yeah, it's just putting the div on top of each other trick. all the time, <laughs> and it's like it's like an infinite list, but actually it's just the same thing slacking through every time. That's cool. Now, what I like about that is, you know, in the early days of Live View, and Cade can attest to this when we were trying to use it, was you know there weren't JavaScript hooks, or it wasn't nearly as mature as it is now, and it was painful to try and do some of these things you had to end up making compromises with the design that you were approaching because, you know, like, you know, it might be my preference to have this user experience, but that's too hard. So I'm going to do something else instead. Uh, but what I like about this is like, you know, hooks are mature and you have JavaScript libraries like Fat Table that you can just plug in and you can still have the user experience that you feel this is what's right. This is what I want for my app. I want this user experience. And really to do that, I need some JavaScript and I mean, I can pull that in. And it can just hook up nicely. Hooks really add a lot of value to doing stuff like this. I know that we created a, a little infinite scroll hook, and it's really easy to throw that into a component. And then when somebody on the team needs to make infinite scroll, like the work is mostly done for them. They can just kind of reuse what we have. So I really enjoy hooks, and I, I love how composable they are. And I, I like, maybe we'll get into this later. I like how you're putting a bunch of attributes into your element that you're pulling into your hook to kind of add configuration, you could say. I, mm -hmm. That's an awesome approach. Yeah, I, I want to say that the Phoenix Docs even has like a, a simple example of infinite scroll, but the approach there is without a JavaScript library and would, I assume, you know, when you scroll down to the bottom of the page, it goes and fetches the, the, the next X rows. And if you were to get to the end of that list, I presume you would have a million rows and, and your page might start getting laggy because you still you actually have those divs on the page. Yeah. Um, so this is a much more performant you know, solution to that. That's pretty cool. You know, like one of the things I dislike about Infinite Scroll is like if you ever want to get to the bottom of a web page just to see like their links were for careers or privacy policy, <laughs> the, you can never footer. get there. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the other things I thought was interesting that you were doing was just how you were communicating the data back down to the client. So the library would basically say, hey, I'm ready for some data from this row to this row. Can you give me the data? And it would, and as you're doing this communication through, through the WebSocket, doing push events, can you talk to about that and how that worked and how you felt about that? So at the beginning, I, I really thought about using a more traditional approach, like of uh, just doing some Ajax requests. So I thought, uh, I'm going into the middle of the div and I want uh, this row and this block um, from the database so I can just do a request to, for it and, it, and it's going to work. But then I thought, um, the socket is open already. So I can just like, I can just ask the socket for the data directly. It's, it's much faster than just doing an HTTP request, waiting for the call and waiting to go back. Additionally, there's no, there's no real limit of, um, HTTP request. Like there's a limit of uh, HTTP request. There's no limit of the socket. Sorry. So that means that, um, I can just request like three, four, five, six pages as long as the user is scrolling down. Whereas I would be pretty limited, uh, at some point. I couldn't just request like 10 blocks at the same time if I was doing it the, the normal way. Additionally, 
it's pretty fast. Uh, you, you don't have to wait for anything. You just get you just get the data back instantly. There's one thing I want to point out there, just to, for you, dear listener. When I hear people talk about WebSockets, and sometimes inevitably I hear someone complain and say, "Oh, well, you know, you still have to deal with the the time for you to talk to the server." It's like you know, they're, and they're kind of thinking you have like 125, 150 milliseconds just in communication. And when you're dealing with WebSockets, that is much less the case than you think. Particularly because like if I'm talking to a server that has a TLS communication where it's HTTPS, just to establish that AJAX request to an HTTPS connection makes six round-trip TCP calls just to negotiate the handshake so that I can actually make the request and, and get my data back. And when you're on a WebSocket, you still spend that same dedicated time to create your WebSocket and set that up. But then everything else is just like send one request up and one request down. So it's actually much faster than you might think if you're just familiar with you doing AJAX calls. So I think it's great. I think it's a, an interesting, fun way that you you did that. Yeah, it's very fast. Actually, um, I don't mention this on the blog, but uh, I'm actually slowing down the uh, the light key just to display the loading part uh, on the blog <laughs> on the video because on the, otherwise on the local machine you cannot even see it's loading. Is the data is just feel it's there and you don't you don't even notice what's going on. You just feel it's working and you don't That's see funny. what's behind the scenes. That's funny. It's like I spent time on this loading anim- animation. I want to show it, so we're gonna s- arbitrarily slow things down by a hundred milliseconds or something. Well, at least just so your video can show it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got to ask you, since since you're doing something with uh, accounting on this, I'm, I'm curious. We don't have to jump into it too much, but did you have a hard time finding like a way to get your transactions out? Like, did you have to explore like the open financial exchange, the OFX things? And like, did, did you find that troublesome? Or, you know, do you have any recommendations there? Because personal finance can be pretty difficult for some folks, I think. At least getting that data out of their financial institution systems yeah so i'm using this um this uh company called plate uh which can connect to bank accounts uh directly the main difference uh basically with between my app and the way things are working on other apps is that i want to have both ways i want to be able to also add transactions manually because you have two kinds of budgeting tools uh you have the ones where you just do everything yourself and you have the ones where you connect to the bank, but you, you cannot do anything. And I wanted to have both in the same place so that uh, you can connect to the bank where it, where it makes, makes sense. And you can just add data manually. For example, like I have some bank account where there's no API. There's no, like I have to call somebody to, to get the amount. Like it's just not, there's just no IT part. Mm-hmm. This one, I'd like to be able to use it. Uh, and I'd like to be able to enter the data manually if I want to. So I'd like to to have these kind of two approaches, like half manual and half automated. Nice. So Plaid has given you that that missing link uh, between the institutions that don't give you API access directly. Okay, cool. For you uh, who aren't familiar with Plaid, Plaid is created by the same company that did Stripe. So it is really nice because it's like API first. We are writing this to the developer. And so it's an awesome interface and service. I've used it before too for connecting up to bank accounts. Interesting. I didn't I didn't know that was made by the same folks that did Stripe. I just wanted to mention when we were talking about the WebSockets, I kind of like to think of the way that you can send events to your server. It's kind of like a pit of success because 
Alex was saying that he could, he was thinking about doing XHR requests, but it was just like easier just to use the built-in push event. It's a pit of success because if you just do what's easiest, you end up doing it in a way that is better and faster anyways. So you just kind of like fall into this pit of success. <laughs> and that's one thing I like about LiveView is just like, if you need to make a request, like you could make a controller and you could test that controller and set up all of the a route for it and do all of this setup. Or you could just type this dot push event and it ends up being faster and better anyways. Yeah. Yeah. Mark, you had a quote a couple episodes back. It's like the best API is no API. <laughs> <laughs> and this, this kind of, yeah, is, is that I don't have to answer those questions anymore. Just push event to or push event right through yeah. the WebSocket. I will say I have seen that taken too far. There was a, a guy who worked on a project that I'd seen where he was really enamored by this idea of being able to push events. And so he did all of the communication that way. And it's just, it becomes asynchronous and it's, it doesn't follow the normal request response flow. And it just created all these bugs because it really was a misapplication of the technology. So I think it's a really cool technology. And when Cade first saw that, like how easy it was from the server. So like a request comes in and an event fires. I can say, oh, this is the request. I'm going to fetch some data and package it up as a map and then just push that as an event down to the client. And it becomes JSON just through that process. And it just comes in naturally at the client. So it's like super elegant. So Alex, you've told us where you, you told us the, 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 the use case where you have a lot of content to display on the page and, you know, partnering with a JavaScript library called uh, fattable.js and then Phoenix Live View to, you know, share events and communicate back and forth over the uh, WebSocket. That's a lot of data coming from the server going to the, the front end. You know, tell us about the tips uh, that you have for how do you get some data that only exists on the client side and how do you get that to the back end? You, I think you had a specific example, something about local date and time. Tell us about that. The other thing um, I've done recently is that uh, you have a lot of dates uh, to display in the in budgeting uh, app here. So including the, the date where you actually spend the money. And all of this needs to be displayed according to the, to the time zone. So I thought about, um, uh, like just adding moment.js or something like this to, to the project. But then I realized that, um, I could also just do this on the server side and, uh, not spend all this, uh, extra, uh, weight into the client side. Because uh, a few, like one of the things people don't really know about that much, but I've done a lot of Rearchitecture of of projects is that moment.js. If you don't configure it, is just adding one full megabyte to the project, just to be just with all the locals and all the all the necessary files here. So you have to tweak it a bit as well. So I thought just to, I can if I can do this on the on the server side, uh, it's just gonna not spend any of this. It's just gonna work straight away. And what I've done then is just sending the, the, the time zone of the client, sending the time zone with a live view socket. You have some parameter to initialize the socket. Once I had that, I could just render the time zone straight away and render the, the exact date according to where the, the user is. The next step after this is to add a small controller to add this to the session. Because once you first load the page, the socket is not connected. So if you don't do this, what happens is the date gets displayed and then once the socket connects and then the, the date gets corrected somehow. So this is very poor uh, user experience. 
So you need to store this in the session first. So that when you render the page on the server side, uh, it just like works straight away. I like that tip about storing in the session because the mount and then when you do the upgrade to live view, it would re-render. And yeah, in, in that meantime, you'd lose it. What I loved about this tip is, you know, I've done a lot of uh, React and Vue front-end stuff. And, you know, that's where your templating is all on the front-end. And I was using like Moment.js or something like that to, you know, use the the browser's locale information. It knows where it is and it's configured for that. And then you can just kind of say, oh, well, on the back end, all of my dates are UTC or they're, or they're naive times, but I want to be able to render it in the locale that's relevant to the person. And it, that totally makes sense when you're talking about transactions. It's like, you know, five o'clock in the morning, I was not at a coffee shop, you know, it's like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> offset a couple hours. Yeah. This was a uh, pretty interesting, like I've done it similarly. You add, uh, you add a lot of good parts here. You add it to also local storage, which I thought was interesting. And you have the session set time zone controller. You can go into more detail there. I, I've done similar things, but I didn't go through the local session or the local storage rather. And I didn't do the, the controller. I let that bad experience happen where the first connection and it's something that's, you know, doesn't make a lot of sense to the user and then it gets updated, but that's only on the first one. You know, then I stored in the session and then it continues to be the right one, you know, coming out. The other thing here is that like you're using browser native functions here, like the new date, this is JavaScript, new date dot get time zone offset. And that's how you're able to get that information from the browser, from the client side, and send it to, and you're, you're just setting up an orchestration to send it to the back end. And then from there on out, it's all server side. So tell me a little bit more about the local storage stuff and the, the controller. Like, what was your intent behind, especially the local storage? What, what are you doing there? I thought about using Moment.js, which uh, I didn't want to do because uh, of the weight of it. And I also thought about um, adding like other libraries to like uh, to just fetch to fetch the data and then i thought uh, to myself i could just use like some basic like local storage xml http request and just call the, the right controller with uh, the time zone data and just put it in the session and so that's, uh, that, that, that's what i've done the reason also of putting it into the local storage is that um once you get this data out of the server you don't really want to refresh it unless the time zones change so I just verified that uh, the time zone hasn't changed, and if that's the if that's the case, like the server doesn't need to to know anything because it has the data already. Nice. One thing also I'm uh, using quite a bit here. Um, I'm going to post the link here as well. I'm using this um, MicroJS uh, website quite a lot. Um, maybe not for this UK, but in the project itself here, which is a, a kind of a database of very small lightweight libraries that you can use. And I think it's a great resource for uh, live view users and live view developers because um, this way you can just like get the right feature you need and just stitch it into the live view and don't not getting not installing something which wastes way too much. Yeah. Uh, this way you can scale it up like uh, logarithmically instead of uh, exponentially. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great tip. Yeah. So microjs.com is uh, yeah. just super lightweight things that, that would make sense. It would fit really well with Live View where you're just needing to decorate little bits on a certain occasions. So you told us that you, you skipped using Moment.js on the front end side of things, um, but there's still some translation that happens elsewhere. And that in your tip is uh, on the server side now. What, what did you use to, to do that on the server side? 
So on the server side for the language, it's a bit, the situation is a bit better compared to the time zone. It's much, much less complex because the browser is sending on every request the accept language uh, header. Mm-hmm. So this is very useful for us because we can just create a plug in the live view. Uh, and with this plug, we just get the current local. And then with the local and the time zone we just got uh, from the previous step, we can just render the dates uh, properly with the right language and the right time. Gotcha. And, and you're using CLDR for that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Gotcha. Very excellent library. Unicode, common local data. Thank you, Google. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, CLDR is, is the ISO body, you know, collection of Unicode like things. And it's around everything. Times, currency, numbers, how to express numbers, how to how to uh, vocalize those, like if you were to turn the numbers into letters, right? Oh, wow. Uh, um, so all sorts of stuff, right? And in the Elixir world, there's a, a CLDR, just named CLDR, and a collection of libraries around it. And it's uh, maintained by probably one of the smartest folks out there that I know is Kip Cole. Like, this guy is is pretty amazing when it comes to this stuff. The way he manages it is, like, he leverages the compilation, um, Elixir compilation for all these kinds of things. Just like Moment.js, you know, m- maybe out of the box, uh, the default is to get everything, which is way too large. Uh, CLDR um, in Elixir could have that same issue, right? So we optimize it at compile time by only including uh, the locales that you know that you're going to need and only including the libraries of translating the strings and numbers, the, you know, the, what you're going to need. And time zones is, you know, is, is one of those things uh, that's handled here too. So just to recap here, so like you're getting the time zone and the locale by default from the browser and from the client side. It's being sent back to the backend. You're getting it out. Um, you're parsing that out via a plug. Uh, in a normal connection, you're setting it into the session, which is then available in a live view, and you're using CLDR to translate the time into a, a format that the the user knows, and it's all happening all, all on the server side, which is, that's pretty great. That's pretty great. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. Yeah. And then on the on the client side, you just get a piece of string uh, just representing the data you want and nothing else. Yeah. I've gotten almost there. The The way that I did it, though, is I always output the uh, ISO 8601, I think, format. And I, I put that into a data attribute on all my cells. And so I don't think about any formatting on the, on the server side. I have done what you've done where I've gotten the locale and the time zone offset. But for formatting, I still left it to the browser, which you're solving a user experience issue here where the, the format can flip. You know, when they're when they're on the page and it'll it'll show an ugly one and then it'll it'll flip to the right one <laughs> for them. So my solution doesn't do that, but I don't think I use the CLDR library at this at this point. So I avoid that dependency, which isn't a big deal, right? It's fine to have CLDR. But in the data attribute, you know, then I have a live view hook that will look for all those data attributes and then call the browser to um, localize that ISO eighty six oh one timestamp to whatever the user's configuration is. But there might be some drawbacks to that. Maybe you can help me out with this. You know, just because the user is situated in the East Coast or, you know, some time zone, if they're looking at a calendar or something like that, maybe they don't want it to be like their current, but maybe they're traveling and they want it to be their home time zone. Is it fair to always use it, you know, use what the browser is currently set to? Is there, do you think that's, you know, the best way to do it? Or how, how do you manage that? Yeah, there's basically no real right answer, I think, like uh, with everything with dates and, and time zones. 
you could either uh, just display the date as it is, yeah, from what you, you've uh, stored the date uh, to be, or change it and display to the cur- uh, current uh, time zone, which is what I've, I've been, um, I've, I've decided. But uh, there's also, yeah, is- there's issues with both, uh, both answers, I think. Uh, especially that, uh, when you pull in some external data, sometimes you don't even know uh, which time zone the date was uh, supposed to be uh, created. Uh, so sometimes you don't even have that information uh, available. So I've been choosing to uh, display the date according to the current time zone, uh, even if that uh, makes makes it like uh, or like you just spent at 4 a.m. at that place and actually it was during the day. I, I've, um, I'm accepting this, uh, this, uh, this choice, but, uh, if you're building something like a calendar on, on an agenda, it's, it's not gonna work. You need actual time, uh, management. And like if you set your alarm to be at, uh, uh, or event at, uh, 10 a.m. on that day, it needs to be 10 a.m. Uh, regardless of uh, where you, you, you're living. Right. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking if I were to want to really solve that, and like you're, this is your personal project, right? So you're you don't need to do this, right? You only need to go as far <laughs> as you care. <laughs> but I was thinking, like, if I really need to do that, then I'd probably be storing with the transaction information something about the geography of where that happened, like where that place is, because it happened probably in a place. Well, if it's online, you know, that's different, because then you have a a time zone that it took place in. So I don't know. It's an interesting idea. Yeah. And another approach too is if you have a concept of a user that's logged in, you know, I think, I think applications will typically store, uh, what time zone you prefer and then maybe detect what time zone you are currently in. And if they differ, then they could show you a notice on the page. And I think that's maybe where, like, like in my approach where I, I put the ISO 8601 timestamp in a data attribute, that could be helpful because I always have UTC stored somewhere on the page. It's already there. And if they happen to be in a different time zone than what is in their settings, then maybe you could click a button and it would trans, you know, it would, it would change the, the time zone to be where you're currently at. So th- that'd be interesting, but it doesn't get away from that user experience issue, like on that first flip, right? It, it's, it shows the UTC time zone, not in a form that you might recognize and you still, and, and the, the JavaScript has to go change it to your locale, you know, uh, version of that timestamp. Well, Alex, we're coming up to almost a, a time where we have to stop. But before we switch and talk a little bit about Flutter, because I'm interested to hear some of your thoughts and experience on that. But is there anything else you want to talk about on this live view and hooks and time processing or anything there? Yeah, one of the things I'd like to talk about is how I've managed to discover Elixir and uh, why I've been uh, choosing this uh, technology. And is that uh, one day I stumbled upon the very excellent video from uh, Chris McCord, uh, which is uh, building, who is building like a, a Twitter, like a very small uh, Twitter, uh, and he's building it in 40 minutes, uh, which is amazing. And I couldn't even do it in three days in Node, whereas this was the, that was the technology I was uh, very comfortable with at that point, yeah. And I was, I, um, I was more productive in one hour with an unknown technology than a technology I knew the inside out yeah, for the past three years. That was very surprising to me. And I, I kind of had a small, like, revelation <laughs> that, uh, life you was the right choice here. Yeah. You could build something amazing in just like a few, a few hours that you couldn't normally with a traditional, like, client server piloting, uh, which are, much slower to build things. 
So actually, that leads me into this next little section because uh, I know you've been also just, I could tell from your blog that you've also been using Flutter. And, you know, Flutter is a great technology for the mobile end. And I'd just like to hear your thoughts on where you think Flutter really fits and how kind of like where you think LiveView fits and just, I don't know, what what observations and thoughts do you have on that? On my case, yeah, I've been I've been building this mobile app uh, using Flutter, uh, like for the most part. So the I have a mobile and an unreleased desktop version which are uh, using Flutter. Flutter is a great piece of technology, and I would compare it to kind of open source Flash in a way. Whereas the like the strong points are on animation and rendering, plus the binary size of of all of it, yeah. Whereas the downsides are kind of the same as Flash in a way. It's very poor fit for the web, uh, the way the rendering model is, is, uh, is building because trying to, um, render every pixel and trying to recreate the rendering model of a browser is just, it's just not something which works well, yeah. So I've experienced with uh, a few ports of my app, uh, into the website and uh, that just never really worked. It was very slow, very uh, cumbersome and I, I didn't really enjoy it. Yeah. So I began, I began searching for other technologies to build the web part of uh, this application and also the APIs because there's a lot of APIs as well. At that time, I had a small prototype in the, also in, in that, but then I found, um, I found, uh, at that, time the uh talk from uh, Chris McCombe and then I tried the the small uh Twitter uh, example and then I thought it's just the perfect technology to build this. It's just perfect technology to build a dynamic app there. Well I just want to encourage you, dear listener, if you're interested in any of these topics, check the show notes to get links to Alex's blog post where he takes all the topics we talked about and puts it with code, something that you can actually see and play with. And uh, I want to thank you, Alex, for taking the time to meet with us and share this information. Thank you also for writing this stuff and sharing your journey, you know, because you're just kind of exploring and still playing with Elixir. And I love that you're, you know, out there talking about it and saying, hey, this is something cool I learned and I want to share it. I think that's awesome. Thank you, Mark. I I really enjoyed the show also. If people want to follow you or get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Just follow the G blog for now. I don't really have a Twitter or anything. <laughs> I just post uh, mainly on uh, on Reddit uh, or Hacker News when I, I have a, some new stuff I'm building. Uh, but I'm not using Twitter at the moment. So I guess the best way is through the blog. Well, we'll have links to those things in the show notes so you can check for that. But that's all the time we have for today. So thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.